me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And if you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we will get a Bible to you. Everyone's going to need the text in front of them, whether it's printed or digital. And so just hold up your hand and we'll get that to you. So it is a new year, 2024. I'm assuming that some of you have made some New Year's resolutions, or at least uh, you've been thinking about uh, some changes you want to make in 2024. I, I know I've thought of a few changes that I could make. Um, this is the time of year when people often think of what I just call a new growth plan, right? A new growth plan. I, I want to grow in my faith more this year. I want to grow in my fitness um, I want to grow in my finances. Uh, I want to grow in my waist. Just kidding. No one says that. It's my one joke I put in my notes today. No one says, I want to grow in my waist. I want the opposite of that. Ironically, or providentially, this is exactly what today's passage is talking about. A growth plan. So let's take a look at it. A growth plan. Pick up in verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This here, within these few verses, is the Christian growth plan, and it has a very set deadline to it. What does it say in verse 10? The day of Christ. This is that set deadline that we all have for our growth. Christianity by its nature, has a growth plan already hardwired into it. There's no such thing. You won't find this. There's no such thing in Scripture as a non-growing Christian. No such thing. Now, we can have times where we backslide and so on and so forth. But the, the Christian vision is an upward trajectory of progression in Christlikeness. That's how it works. That's what you see in the Scriptures. And the growth plan that you'll find there is not just for the next 12 months, but for the rest of our lives into eternity. If you need some motivation, if you need to get jacked with some more fuel for your life, read the New Testament. There's an objective deadline to meet. That's the day of Christ in verse 10. And it's not done by our resolve or our strength Rather, what does it say in verse 11? It's these words, through Jesus Christ. And it's not, tell you what it's not first, and then we'll tell you what it is. It's not for our self-glory and praise. Rather, it says in verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. You might have some goals in 2024, like I, I want to get fit. That's a goal of mine. I want to get fit, right? In 12 months, you might look at me and you might give me some praise. You might give me some going, man, brother, you're looking good, right? That's not a bad thing. That's not what it's saying here in the passage. 
It's saying ultimately, this growth plan you're on is going to end at the day of Christ. It's going to happen through Jesus Christ, not just your resolve. And the glory and praise are going to be offered to the one who's responsible for generating it in you. God. I'll say it this way in a sentence. In the end, God gets the glory and you get the joy on this final day. This day where God will be glorified. This is the logic of the verse. God will be glorified by how much he's changed you. That's where the glory is coming from. There's going to be other reasons for God's glory and to glorify God in that moment. But in this text, God's glorified by how much over your lifetime he has changed you into a new person. That's what the text says. Look down at your Bibles. Look at the things it lists. By how pure you are, by how blameless you are, by how fruit-filled and righteous he's made you to be in him. When I really think about that, that's what God's busy doing in my life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on, 2024, 2025, so on, I just think, what a bargain. What an amazing deal that God is working towards me becoming like Christ, most fully alive in him. And the end result of that change in me is his praise and his glory. He gets the glory. I get the joy of being made new. So, everything in your life, seasons of suffering, seasons of blessing, is driving to this final day that it talks about right here in verse 10. Okay? All the growth is building for the day of Christ. I want to get this deep in our minds. This needs to be set as your life's end goal. To stand there on that day that will happen. We don't know when, but God knows. To stand there on that day changed into Christlikeness. We got to let that, so you got a vision for 2024, right? In 12 months, I'd like for this to be true, this to be different in my life. This is an even bigger one. <laughs> Set out way far into the future. One day it will come. I want to be there, and I want to be like this that it's described here in the passage. Through the work, as it says, of Jesus Christ. And then... You'll be filled, I think, with enough purpose to get you out of bed, fueled for that day, and enough purpose to get you through anything. Because you know, Romans 8, 29, God's using all things, positive and negative, for your good for this final end goal on the day of Christ. Am I making some sense? We're talking real big picture of how the New Testament wants you to get, get you to look at your little life now that one day will be like this. So on Monday, I have the day of Christ in mind. On Tuesday, I have the day of Christ in mind. I'm living each moment with eternity in mind. That's the vision it's putting out. So this is what I want to do. I want to unpack it together. I want to walk out of here with loads of godly purpose, not just for 2024, 
but for the rest of our lives. As best we can, by God's word and his spirit. So let's take it verse by verse. All right? Pick up in verse 9. Paul says, it's my prayer that your love, notice what he talks about, may abound more and more. It's three things, love, and then with knowledge, number two, and all discernment, number three, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Let's pause there. So I want us to think about this. The goal of these three things that he lists in verse 9, love, knowledge, all discernment, the goal of these three things growing is in you is so that you'll develop this most necessary ability that he talks about in verse 10. If you ain't got, I'll put it in southern English, if you ain't got these three things, it won't result in this very necessary thing that he talks about in verse 10. Okay? What is it? What is this? I call it a Christian skill. What is it in verse 10? It says the ability to what? Approve what is excellent. It's a Christian skill. So the logic of the text follows like this. This necessary ability for the Christian is what then allows them to to approve what's excellent, is what allows them, just follow the verse, to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. All of them build on each other, is what Paul is showing you here. So think of this like a river, all right? A river. There are things that must happen first upstream that lead to these results happening downstream. Upstream, you're growing in these three things listed in verse 9. And then if that's happening, then downstream, these necessary things will happen for the day of Christ. So the text is also ultimately saying this. For you to be ready, because you need to be ready, for the deadline, the day of Christ, these three things need to be growing in you now. Now. January of 2024. Now. Upstream. So this is what happens downstream. According to Scripture, they're essential to the Christian growth plan, these three things. Love, knowledge, and all discernment. And look at the language of nine. That your love may abound more and more. What is abound more and more? That's growth language. It's growing. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So they're not optional. Not optional. If you're not growing in them, we'll take the negative then you won't have the ability that every Christian needs, apparently, to approve what is excellent. And we'll get into what in the world does that mean. Resulting in a lack of purity and blamelessness, resulting in you being unready for the day of Christ. Okay? So that's how it's building. Now we got to answer this question. Because if we leave you there, you're going to walk out confused. What are these three necessary things that Paul's talking about? Sounds like they're really important to the growth plan. What does the text mean by love in verse 9, by knowledge, and by all discernment? Okay? So we're going to look at these verses to get that answer. Notice in verse 11 the metaphor that Paul is using to describe the Christian growth plan. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Fruit. 
That's agrarian language. It's farming language. In our bedroom, um, I got to meet my, one of my best friends. His grandfather was a, a, a peach farmer, had an orchard, northeast Georgia, um, named Mr. Chitwood. And there was a painting made of Mr. Chitwood. And uh, I'm going into too much detail, but we haven't fully decorated her upstairs. The only thing I had was this little painting of Mr. Chitwood. I put it right next to uh, the head of my bed, and he basically looks on me every night as I go to sleep, which is funny. But Mr. Chitwood was a peach orchard, wise Christian man. He was definitely doing this growth plan, okay? This here is farming language. It's harvest language, okay? That's the, that's the metaphor he's using is harvest, filled with the fruit of righteousness. At the harvest is when you want everything to be filled, the whole orchard to be filled with fruit, okay? So get this. The end of all these things playing out over the decades of your life is a harvest of righteousness. That's what he's saying in verse 11. A harvest of righteousness. That your life, in the end, would be filled with lots of righteous fruit. Both within you, that's character, and then what you've done. That's legacy. Okay? Righteousness within, righteous acts on the outside. Filled, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So go here with me. Harvest. In this text and in other texts, this is how it works. The final vision of history is that Christ has produced in his global saints fields of righteous fruit as far as the eye can see. That's, that's what we're looking at here. Saints as fruit trees of beautiful holiness and Christ-likeness standing together in rows. That's the language. And on that last day, when surveying these colorful and luscious fields of Christian fruitfulness in the saints... It says in verse 11 that God will be glorified and praised. It will be a celebration for the ages on that final day. I mean, I, I can see it now. I can see this image. And I can't wait to get, to, to get there. And I just imagine what a holy party this will be. And here's what's not going to happen. We won't be praising each other. That's not what the text says. We won't be praising each other on that day to the saintly tree next to you saying, my, how virtuous you are. How self-resolved you are. That's not what it says. On that day, in those fields of harvest, it says all eyes will be on Christ in verse 11. It says we'll be praising God. I mean, really, like, celebrating, partying, dancing, in God, for purifying a beautiful people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the vision of Scripture. And I just thought of this this week. <laughs> what a miraculous work it'll be to take hard-hearted sinners from across the globe and across the centuries 
to over time grow them into these kinds of people. That's a miracle. And scripture promises that God's not only doing it, but he will do it. This day will come. Here's what you need to hear at the beginning of 2024. God is busy doing this right now in your own life, in your own mistakes, in your own sinfulness, in your own struggles. God's busy doing this because he's got a deadline. And he's committed to you. He's covenanted to you. In Christ, through your faith in him, you're united. He's covenanted to you to say, I'm going to get you there. Come hell or high water, I'm going to get you there. It's the promise of Scripture. And I think of globally how right now, actively, by the word and by the spirit across the nations, this very hour, God's doing this work. Titus 2.14, purifying a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right now in bedrooms and in front of screens, in offices and in homes, in churches and in the marketplace, across the nations, in private and in public, in suffering and in blessing, on knees and in the word, God's spirit is blowing across the earth for this very purpose. Harvest. Harvest. A harvest of God's saints filled with what it says in verse 11, the fruit of righteousness. I want to be there. (laughs) I want to be there on that day. I want to be standing in the field, ripe with Christian fruit, standing there basking in the sun of God's glory, just covering over all the saints. Fields upon fields of this kind of harvest. Look at how Revelation talks about it. This is Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. That's purity with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom And thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so, I want to let that final day, that vision, get so implanted in our minds and hearts as God's people. Let it become fuel for you every day you wake up. That this is the goal. This is the goal. You got many goals that day. I got to get to this meeting. I got to get that email done. I got to get the kids off to school. They have many goals. But let this be that chief goal above all of those. That will fuel you for those smaller goals. How I want to serve my kids. How I want to serve my colleagues. Let this thing be that mountaintop in the distance 
that you're aiming towards. Because you need that. We all need that. On a smaller scale, you need a concrete goal, end goal for growth, on whatever that thing is you want to change in 2024. I, I, you know, by in 12 months, I want X to happen. You need that. We all do. And so Paul, by revelation, is offering that here in the text. You with me? You with me? Okay. All right. You're allowed to say amen, uh uh-huh, all the good stuff. You're also allowed to just sit there and think. Verse 9. I want you to notice something that Paul's talking about. Okay? So he's talking about love. Love is the seed, again, harvest language, that is to grow up more and more. And then two things come. Knowledge and all discernment are the stems that shoot up. That's how it's talking about. And they eventually produce the necessary ability, verse 10, to approve what is excellent. Leading to the budding of purity and blamelessness that eventually pops out the fruit of righteousness. Okay? So let's first answer. We're getting deeper, so you walk out with clarity. How, how do I pursue this? Not just be inspired, but, but do something with it. James, you know, James said one, one or first, chapter one or two. Not just being hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Okay, so we first got to answer so you can be a doer of the word this morning. What is, like really, what is, what Paul says in verse 10, what is the ability to approve what is excellent? What is that? And then that's going to tell us why these three um, growth things are essential. Okay, so let me give it to you in a sentence. Approving what is excellent in any given scenario is the ability to do three things, to distinguish, to love, and to pursue the will of God. It's the ability to distinguish, that's God's will, to love it, to want it, and then thirdly, to pursue it, to do it. The will of God is what's excellent in the life of a Christian every time. So to approve what is excellent. But here's the deal. It's not always easy in different scenarios to know what it is. Have you noticed that? It's not always easy to know what is God's will here in this situation, in this decision, in this lifestyle choice. So we need this Christian skill because there's all kinds of perplexities of life where a rule book just doesn't work. So many Christians want a rule book. But the New Testament is trying to give you a skill so that you can discern in the moment, by God's word and his spirit, what's right. You're going to come across, and you already have, so many different scenarios, so many different value judgments, so many different lifestyle choices, so many big decisions in transition that have long-lasting impact. And if our goal is to always love and pursue the will of God, then you're going to need this Christian ability. Examples, entertainment, as a family. How are we going to um, promote the right culture of entertainment in our house? Are we going to have a TV? Okay, we're going to have a TV. What platforms are we going to use? What are we not going to use? What are we going to watch? How are we going to handle the kids? Some of you older parents, you've been through all that, right? You've got to distinguish what's the right thing for them, what's best for them, what's God's will for my kids. Job change, career change, pivot. Lord, what's your will? Are we supposed to pick up and move all the way to Dallas? 
Am I supposed to leave this job that I, I'm, I'm comfortable in it? It makes good money, but I, there's this ache in me to pursue this bigger business or dream or nonprofit, right? Here's one. Should I confront that person? Gosh, I, can we keep the relationship going without talking about this? Lord, what's your will? I don't, I, I'm mixed on my emotions. What's your, God's will is the ultimate filter and decision maker. It's the altar upon which everything lands. I feel this way about it, but God, what do you want me to do, right? That's how the Christian lives. And so you've got to have this ability to distinguish. Every time you, 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 um, we're trying to do these three things, we're trying to distinguish God's will, love God's will, and pursue God's will. I've had so many of these conversations with you and many others before you over the decades. Coming to a transition. What's God's will? What am I supposed to do? Okay? This is what it means to approve what is excellent. But to get there, you have to have, according to the text, growth in these three areas first, upstream. That's how it works. Love, knowledge, and all discernment. So that, that's literally the language of verse 10, you may approve what is excellent. All right? Look at a sample from the, from the New Testament. Romans 12, Romans 12, 2. Again, how it's talking about this skill that you need. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What's the purpose of renewing your mind? So that you can discern what the will of God is. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. I don't hear enough sermons on this, quite honestly. Hebrews 5. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the, for the mature. Here's this definition of the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We need more preaching on this. This sounds essential to the Christian life. It's so that you'll be able to distinguish the will of God. You need both knowledge and discernment to do that. you got to know God and the faith so that you can discern what's God's will. you got to uh, discern that skill of discernment. you got to discern what's of Him and what's not. You see? So that's why knowledge and all discernment are really important to be able to to distinguish God's will and pursue it. Now, where does growth in these two Christian commodities come from? Knowledge and all discernment. Well, many places, but one in particular, and you know what I'm going to say, God's Word. Knowledge and discernment. God's Word. That's a primary Christian source of growing in those two essential things. God's Word. Your mind needs to become one with his mind in the book. You see? It needs to become the new neural network through which you interact with the world. That's renewing the mind. The glasses through which you look out on your life. So you see as God sees, you think as God thinks, you feel as God feels, and you act as God acts. That's why becoming one with the Word by God's Spirit is just absolutely essential and incredibly rewarding and joyful. Okay? 
But that's not all you need according to verse 9. It says, there's a third thing, first thing it lists, you also need love. That your love may abound more and more. That it may grow. Why? Why is love essential to discerning what God's will is for my kids' entertainment or for my job change? Why is love essential? Because being able to distinguish God's will is only half of the game. Knowledge and discernment is only half of the game. You need to what? Love God's will. Whatever you love, you pursue. Whatever you love, you pursue. Man, I love fried chicken. Well, I'm going to go eat some. Man, I think I'm falling in love with Danielle. I'm going to ask her, you know, to marry me. Whatever you love, you pursue. Right now, I really love, I know it's a strong word, maybe I like it. I really like playing tennis, so I play. Whatever you love or whatever you like, you pursue. Only if you love God's will will you pursue it. And only if you pursue it will you do it. If you're not running after that direction, you're never going to get there and actually perform the act. So whatever you love, you pursue. And whatever you pursue, you do. Okay? Meaning you need to love God's ways over the world's ways. You need to cherish following and pleasing Him over man. Love and this is why all the films are about love, or a lot of them. Love is the most powerful engine in the world. It's the most powerful engine. If you don't have it, you won't get really far in anything, whether it's your career or your marriage or your walk with God. You certainly won't get far in the Christian journey. Imagine trying to travel across country without an engine. you got to have it. And the Christian life, You've got a destination you're supposed to get to. It's called the day of Christ. You're going to need an engine to travel the roads of transformation, of growing holiness, to arrive at that final destination, which is the day of Christ. You've got to have love to get there. And according to this verse, you've got to have knowledge and discernment. This is why Paul is praying for these things. This is, he's telling them, he's letting them in on his, his prayer list. Verse 9, and it is my prayer, and then he goes on. He's letting them know, hey, in my little prayer journal, these are the things I pray for you, Philippians. Okay? It's a prayer. He knows by revelation how crucial these things are for the Christian journey. And notice that he's not praying to himself to grow these things on his own. He's not praying to Paul. All right, Paul, come on. You got to get it together. You got to go harder in 2024. That's not what he's doing. Paul's not the object of his prayer. God is. He's praying to God. And we, man, I've, I've just memorized this. You can memorize this. This is not hard. It's, someone do the math. It's that many verses, okay? It's not hard. This should become a, a prayer for you. Pray this over to God over yourself, over your family, over your church, all right? Now, it's a prayer to God. But we certainly have a part to play in this. We have a part to play, but it's ultimately going to be generated by who does it say in verse 11? It says, through Jesus Christ. Okay? But what's our part in this? What's our part? Easy. Grab on 
to the historical means of grace. That's what it's called, the means of grace. What are those? They're the same ones they've been throughout the centuries. All the Christian disciplines, Bible, fasting, community, service, discipleship, prayer, silence, solitude, celebration, friendship, on and on and on and on. These are, these are like pipelines from heaven that when you grab onto them, God sends you his dynamism of grace that gets into you and starts to grow you. I started reading this thing when I was 17. I'm 37. It's grown me. It's grown me. No question. You can say the same thing. Nothing that's grown me. Christian community, being a part of house churches, it's grown me. It's changed me. It's one of those that it's subtle growth over a long time. You're not going to go to a house church and be like, wow, I'm unchanged man. It's just like Sunday church. You're not going to, I mean, you know, by God's grace, maybe a sermon really impacts you. And maybe the worship and, you know, all that lifting up to the Lord. But, but, but it's, it's over 12 months of being there on the Lord's day. That you're changing. That you're changing. It's grabbing on to those means of grace. And then at the end, the effect of growing in love, knowledge, and all discernment, so you can improve what is excellent, is what it says in verse 10. That you'll come to the day of Christ pure and blameless. That's the two words it uses. Pure and blameless. We'll, we'll be a part of the harvest. Pure and blameless. Now here's the question. Does that mean sinlessness? Pure and I mean, that's strong language. That you're going to be blameless. Well, does that mean no sin? Let's find the answer. What, the only place I'm going to ask you to turn today. Go to 1 John. The letter of 1 John. Does this mean sinless? That's our question going into 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. By the way, I'm falling in love with the, the Philippians. There's so much here. So prepare for a long journey. Philippians 1, verse 8. So does it mean sinlessness? Answer, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember that in Philippians? Okay. But John also writes later in the letter. Go to chapter 3. So that's true, undoubtedly. But this is also true. Chapter 3, pick up at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, notice that word, a practice of it. What is that? A lifestyle of it with no fight or no struggle against it. You've made peace with it. Whatever that sin struggle is, you've made peace with it. 
You've coddled it. You've harbored it. You've cozied up to it. Use whatever language you want. And there's no warring in your life to eliminate it out over time. That's what it means to make it a practice. You see? We all have sin struggles. The goal is not sinlessness. But the goal, by God's grace, is you're a fighter. You're a fighter. You want to overcome. And it might take a long time, but you're a fighter. Think of Romans 8, great fighting um, metaphor he uses there. So, to answer the question, I think what Paul means by blameless here is something like this, something I found from um, Dr. John Piper on the subject. If we could bring that to the screen. I think it means this. Number one, if aware of any sin, we confess it and make war on it by the Spirit. That's Romans 8.13. We are found blameless in that every sin we're aware of, we hate and we make war on it. That's what it means to be blameless. Number two, we actively pursue holiness. Hebrews 12.14. The holiness without which we will not see the Lord is the verse. We actively pursue holiness and seek it to please the Lord in everything. We're found blameless in this pursuit and pleasing the Lord. Not perfect, but but we're going after that. That, That's true north every time. Number three, we're found to be blameless in our trust in Christ to be our sinless perfection, which we do not have alone in ourselves. Okay? And when this is the blameless lifestyle we lead, by God's grace, we're found to be the second thing in the verse, pure. Not perfect in sinlessness, but pure in our pursuit of God's will and blameless in our ongoing attempts at it. Does that make sense? I don't want anyone walking out of here with a burden that you're to be sinless, but I don't want anyone walking out of here thinking we can make a practice of it. Now, what allows us to think walking out of here today, that we can grow in these things? I mean, really. You might be sitting there in some kind of spiritual despair. Maybe it's been a tough spiritual season for you. And you feel very distant from this holy life that it's talking about in the text. Well, I got good news for you. You're in really good company. Because even the saintliest people in church history feel the exact same way. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. So what gives us confidence that this vision can actually happen over time? That it's not a despairing, futile pursuit. It's what Paul's already told them in Philippians. He said in verse 6, you remember this from the sermon or so ago. He says in verse 6 of chapter 1, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christ. That's a promise. We're responsible for ourselves, but we're not ultimately confident in ourselves. Our confidence lies in Christ's ability, and when it says in verse 6 that he's resolved to never let us quit. And because our confidence lies there, you can pursue this goal with all your might, because Christ is behind it promised to accomplish it. 
So now I can get up, and whatever those struggles are, I can say, Lord, I don't care if it takes a decade. You're doing this in me. You've promised this. I'm all in. It's not futile. It's happening. And so therefore, we become uber responsible and meticulous in our pursuit of Christian growth and doing God's will. And when this Christian growth plan happens, friends, we will be filled with all the fruit of righteousness. I want to end with just describing what this means. Filled with, and I will end, filled with all the fruit of righteousness. Okay? It's a good one to end on because I think it's highly motivating. So, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness at the day of Christ means you don't show up there empty or half-filled. Filled is the language. Filled is not half-measures. No one prays that they'll be half-full at the day of Christ. No one rejoices in 50%. Ephesians 2.10 says it this way. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the question from that verse. Does Christ only want us to do half the good works that he's prepared beforehand? No, he wants the full measure. You'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. So this is why he died, one of the reasons he died, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, you, that are what? His own possession, and you are zealous for good works. That's who he's making you. It's not half-heartedness, but you're zealous for good works. Christ died in that verse to make you fruitful, not just to get you to heaven. And so what the devil loves is coasting Christians. Loves them. I've been there. I've had the seasons. Loves coasting Christians. Because what God wants is zealous people that get up in the morning ready to ask God this. What is next for me, Lord, in filling up the amount of fruit and good works that you've appointed for me in my life, however long it may be, that I'll bring to the day of Christ? I I want those. I'm going to get those. And then a verse like this is so encouraging. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Every, I don't know if it's 100, I don't know if it's 1,000, I don't know if it's 10. But every good work that God has prepared out in the future of my life to walk in. And God has appointed good works for you to do that you won't, and you won't be a called to account for the good work that the guy next to you is supposed to do. There's a specific plan for you. Okay? The passage ends with God's glory and praise. It comes through Jesus Christ. So how does the fruit come? It comes through Jesus. Last text I'll show you. John 15. The fruit comes through Jesus. You want to show up with full fruit? Here's the plan. Jesus says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he or she it is that bears much fruit. There's there's the plan. For apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father's glorified. 
Well, we know that from Philippians, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, so there's joy in this journey, and that your joy may be full. Meaning if we're not attached to Jesus by faith, drawing life and power from him every day, we can't do anything. But if we are, we're promised that we'll bear much fruit that will bring to the day of Christ. And the end result is harvest. And the end result is this. God's glory, and what does Jesus say? Your joy. Joy, not for Tuesday, but for eternity. Like, I like being happy, but I really want to be joyful for all of eternity. Here's the growth plan. Okay? Through Christ Jesus. So, may we all be filled with the New Testament's inspiration and motivation for this final day, every day of our life. Amen?